Welcome, everybody, to episode 23, Vascular Niche. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast, episode 23. Yos, what's up, my man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually recording from uh, the lab today, which is a first for me. Um, I, can, I can see that. If you guys can see Yosef like I can, he's in his animal testing room. There's like a black curtain behind him. It looks like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of <laughs> ominous. Yeah. So uh, uh, this is the first. Cool. This is the first. So um, yeah. So that, that title, I feel like we've been skirting this issue, like dancing around the vascular niche for a while. So I'm glad we're going to get this one out the way. Um, and we're talking yeah. The right person. Sorry, go ahead, man. I cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, we got Daylon back on again, Dr. Daylon James from Wild Cornell. And uh, he's been on the program before, and uh, we're excited to have him back because there's a hot new nature paper uh, that he's on, and uh, hopefully he could shed some light on some of the findings uh, from that paper. It seems very interesting. Uh, so, anything on your end? Any announcements you got to make? This whole thing with Daylon and this paper materialized quickly. Yosef sent me the link to this paper. I checked it out, and then I was talking to Daylon that day, and he was he was jokingly but seriously telling me how the vascular niche is hot right now, and um, the vascular niche has always been hot in stem cell biology. the The niche, the stem cell niche in general, is something that's uh, it's very underrated, but at the same time very appreciated. If that makes any sense. And so today, I guess we'll learn about the vascular niche, what it means, you know, what it does, and what happens to the stem cells in the niche. And and just just it's a niche it's a niche topic today. Do you say niche or niche? By the yeah, way? we've gone over this before, and I think we've concluded that we have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. I feel like I ask the same person the same that same question every time, and yeah. I think I might get different answers. We're going niche today. I don't care what Dalon says. All right, so. Let's see, www.stemcellpodcast.com and you at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter. Uh, keep them coming in. Uh, we're we're going to keep it rolling along. I'm going away for a week. I'm excited about that. So we're getting this show done and on the air for all y'all before I go. Um, what else we got? Yos, I think that's it. I think we should kick it off with the roundup. You want to give it a give it a shot there? You take yeah, it first? yeah. I don't know if you saw that the WHO, the World Health Organization, announced this week that reports of Ebola deaths are up to 603 people in West Africa. So that's sort of a scary science news. Hey. Yeah, sorry, sorry to start off Ebola with that. Ebola's still around, huh? I, I think know. about that movie Outbreak, and it, remember that movie? Yeah, and it's making sort of a wicked comeback. I don't know what's going on with that, but... um. Yeah, apparently uh, get, getting treatment has been hard because of all the myths behind uh, the treatment. Uh, so it's it's kind of a scary time with uh, Ebola running around. But uh, I can't think of a scarier disease. You like bleed out of your ears and every oh, orifice. Man. Yeah, it's like crazy. So um, that's scary. Uh, there was a – what's our favorite journal? PMAS. Yes, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences study finding uh, that friends – uh, have similar olfactory genes. They 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 looked at the genome of you know friends who are not related, and they found that uh, friends have the equivalence of a fourth cousin in their relationship of their olfactory genes that are expressed, and uh, they have highly non-similar immune system genes, which is also you know how we choose our mates apparently uh, by broadening the immune system. So. 
I thought that was an interesting Dude, study. Dude, that's over. so cool. Yeah, I know that you would think, uh, may- and it's like they call it the Starbucks effect. Like maybe you like coffee, <laughs> so I like coffee, and we hang out the same, you know, Starbucks or whatever, and became friends. I, I was going to say because you can't visually select someone on the basis of their genome, so you they must be manifesting phenotypes or certain things outward that re- you know what I'm saying that we're attracted to because I guess the suggestion would be our genes are somewhat similar in some way, or if you think somebody stinks, you. You're probably not going to hang out with them. Yeah, so. I guess that's true, too. <laughs> uh, so uh, another PNAS study showing that marijuana abusers uh, who have uh, up at least five joints a day for the last decade have decreased responses to methylphenidate, which is uh, causes a dopamine influx in the brain. And uh, there was a significant blunted behavioral and cardiovascular and brain dopamine responses uh, in response to the drug. And uh, the heart rate and blood pressure was also lower in these uh, abusers, suggesting that this uh, weaker response is due to a damage reward circuitry, uh, which is mostly likely in the ventral striatum so uh you can find so, that so you penis. so you ex- you you're not as driven for the reward or uh, you're more yeah, driven essentially the dopamine influx they react to it lackadaisically for for <laughs> you know that so uh the reward system sort of tamped down they still wow. produce the dopamine but they, they don't respond to it in the same ways as uh you know non-abusers um, there was an international journal of pathology study describing the oldest case of Down syndrome. Uh, this was a 1,500-year-old uh, skeleton found near a church in eastern France, and it's the oldest known case of uh, of Down syndrome. And uh, judging by the way it was buried, it doesn't appear that the child was uh, shunned in society. So uh, that I thought that was interesting. Wow. Where was that, Yos? Uh, International Journal of Pathology. Pathology, that's yeah, hmm. yeah. That's cool. uh, there was a nature study uh, that discovered fine-grained patterns of neural activity in the orbitofrontal cortex that is responsible for the processing of an individual's subjective feelings, either pleasure or displeasure. So uh, they found uh, that core of firing in the brain in the orbitofrontal cortex. So uh, you can find that in nature. Uh, there was a cell paper that identified the gene CHD8 uh, mutation uh, in babies who are uh, at risk for autism. About 15 out of the 6,000 autistic children they looked at have this uh, mutation in the gene CHD8. And uh, it's characterized by prominent foreheads and gastrointestinal problems. So uh, it's a subclass of autism. Uh, CD CHD eight. I think that's like a like a helicase, uh, if I remember Maybe. correctly, and DNA, like a DNA binding binding protein. That's interesting. Yeah, so you can find that in cell. Uh, there was an Alzheimer's and dementia study identifying ten proteins in the blood that predict Alzheimer's disease onset with a- an accuracy of eighty seven percent. And what? they used about two thousand patients to identify these blood proteins. So that's encouraging news on the diagnostic front. Uh, wow, a blood test. Yeah, we've talked about a similar study in the past before like uh, yeah the, we, we, had, we got into that do you want to know if you have alzheimer's yeah, yeah, go ahead. yeah. Uh, there was a plus one the public library of science uh one study showing that the combination of a variant in a glutamate receptor gene called grin 2a and uh coffee uh, drinking have uh, drinkers have significantly lower risks of parkinson's disease uh so you can find that in plus one uh, there was a BMJ 
Medical Journal. One day I'm going to look up what that stands for. BMJ. <laughs> BMJ. Medical Journal showing that uh, Asian flush or, you know, that, you know, when uh, certain Asian people drink, uh, they get red in, in the face. Uh, that's because they have uh, aldehyde dehydroxylase uh, 1B variants, ADH1B variants. Uh, so when they have this variation in the genome, uh, they have higher acid. Do you say acetaldehyde um, in their blood, and therefore um, they get flushed, essentially, and that these uh, basically Asians who have this have a 17% lower alcohol intake, 22% less likely to binge drink, and therefore had uh, 10% uh, less likely to develop heart disease. So, yeah, they looked at 56 studies. This was a meta-analysis uh, looking at uh, at over 200 and roughly 260,000 participants. So uh, you can wow. find that in BMJ Journal. There was a PNAS, PNAS study, again, uh, where they found fossils of the largest bird ever. This thing was twice the size of an albatross. It had a wingspan of 20 to 24 feet. Uh, so it's called the Pelagornis Sander Sandersy. So yeah, P Sandersy. P Sandersy. Uh, yeah, huge bird, huge bird. Um, there was an epilepsy and behavior journal study uh, finding that the claustrum and deep within the brain switches on and off consciousness. They found this by accident in a 54-year-old with epilepsy trying to find the origin of her seizures. And they basically fired in the claustrum and she became unconscious. So they identified this region in the brain that's responsible for consciousness. What? Yeah, and that's pretty much it for me. I'll end it there. Wow, man. I always want to... Consciousness is like... Fascinating. If I if I want if if and when I go back in my second life, I want to just philosophize about consciousness and study that. Yeah, it's a really cool topic to understand. Really. Yeah, they say you make your decisions deep, you know, deep within the brain, even before you know that you've made the decision. It's already been made. I believe that. Actually, I do. Yeah. I really do. I think that that's that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. All right, cool, man. Let's move to the uh, more stem cell related stuff, and then we can get Daylon on. I think Yosef is actually going to walk across the street uh, to get Daylon <laughs> for a live interview because they're both down in New York City. All right. So there was this. Uh, I was reading this. Uh, on the Wall Street Journal, it says the, the EU, the European Union Court Advisor, backs stem cell patenting. Uh, and this, it says the the general the advocate general's opinion proposes a legal solution and it's not binding. So, I guess there is this top advisor to the European court system that that said that some stem cells derived from women women's eggs can in fact be patented as long as they cannot develop into human beings. So this this is this is going on because I'll get to what really what what the problem was. So. Um, I guess th there was this International Stem Cell Corporation, which is a California-based biotech company. They're fighting against the rejection of two patent applications in the UK for this, some technology to produce stem cells. And the company's arguing that there is this 2011 ruling where this German scientist applied for a patent for stem cells derived from human embryos because he said he can, you know, might be able to help treat patients with Parkinson's. And the European court ruled that patenting cells taken from a human embryo violated human dignity, and that's protected under uh, EU law. And so they were using that as precedent, and they rejected these two patent applications for this California-based biotech company. But they're arguing that 
since the, since it produces stem cells from eggs that have been activated by chemical and electrical methods rather than male sperm, mm-hmm. um, because of the lack of fertilization, they're arguing that it could never develop into a human being, and therefore um, it should not be considered under the same precedent. And this ad- a court advisor came out, uh, you know, backing that up, backing that side up, and, and basically saying that they think that they're going to allow those patents. So. Um, you know, just more uh, global, you know, it's amazing still that people are, this is still lingering in the law systems in some countries themselves as whether or not, um, you know, protecting human life and things like this. But uh, I guess in this application, it looks like they're going to be able to go ahead and patent it. So that's going on over in Europe. There is this uh, large study of stem cells for autism that's actually drawing a bunch of criticism. So there's this team at Duke University, and that's in North Carolina. They're set to launch a $40 million clinical trial to explore stem cells from the umbilical cord as a treatment for autism. Now, a lot of experts are cautioning this and saying that the trial is very premature. Uh, So there was like a $15 million grant from the Marcus Foundation. They're going to bankroll the first two years. Um, and that's on cerebral palsy. And then in the third and the different arm of the trial, they're going to enroll 390 kids and adults for this autism. And so the lead investigator is Joanne Kurtzberg. Um, they're looking at cord blood transplants for, for, for treating disorders such as leukemia sickle cell. And I guess she showed that cord blood transplants can improve, excuse me, the odds of survival for babies deprived of oxygen at birth. This is a randomized trial. Uh, that's underway. And so they're going to do these randomized control trials that are well-designed and well-controlled. This is what she's saying that what we intend to do, we firmly believe we should be moving ahead in time. Did you uh, did you save your baby's cord blood? I did not save it. And you could have done it that, in your lab. <laughs> you could have. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. But every, you know, everybody asks me because that's the most common question I get. And I, I always say that I didn't do it with my own son and I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, just because it's really expensive and it's not really proven to turn into a lot of things. And the technology that we have now is better. Like, you know, like I I feel like there's a lot of other things I could, that we could do out there. Um, and you never really see solid evidence from cord blood. I mean, this, so this is another story here where it's being poo-pooed. So, you know, they said that autism is a complex disorder, right? And it's unclear how stem cells derived from cord blood can improve these connections in the brain. But what they're saying is, uh, they can take cord blood and stimulate themselves. Uh, they say that cord blood can stimulate cells in the spinal cord to regrow their myelin layers. And in doing so, they can help restore connections. And so because – this is their logic. Because autism is thought to result from impaired connectivity, which PS has not necessarily been shown um, definitively, because of this, some groups, they think that they might benefit if they infuse these cells in. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a completely black box. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know why. They're just throwing them in, and they're hoping that it's going to help – push things along um so there was a you know there's a quote from arnold Crickstein, who's the director of the regenerative medicine stem cell research at uc u.s uh, university of california he CERM, right yeah and he said it's probably premature to run large trials without evidence that they have a therapeutic effect that we understand hmm. basically like just because you put something in and you saw something doesn't mean that it's going to happen over and over and it doesn't mean that you know what it's doing uh point taken um you know but Again, this is that argument of, hey, you know, we have that data to show that it works. There are people who, you know, who are willing to enroll and try it. So what what else do we have? So I guess I can see both sides. But anyway, there's this trial. It's going to go underway. Um, trying to see where you can read it. Uh, I believe they had it on the Simon Foundation website. And we'll put the link up for you to check out. So that's going on. Um, 
I saw this headline and it drew my eye. It said, experimental stem cell treatment causes woman to grow parts of a nose on her spine. Ew. I know. So um, there was a paralyzed woman from the U.S. Um, who went over to uh, Liz- Lisbon, a hospital in Lisbon, to get a stem cell transplant into her you know, spine and spinal cord. And it was basically um, where they took stem cells from her nose, uh, which I guess, I don't know what that was. I don't know what the, where stem cells are in the nose. But they took them from her nose and they applied them to her spine and hoped that it could repair the nerve damage and that led to her paralysis. And unfortunately, uh, it was unsuccessful. And now eight years later, she had a lot of pain. And when she went in, they, the surgeons found a tumor comprised of nasal, nasal tissue. Uh, and a thick, sticky substance that was very close to mucus. Oof. That's pretty nasty, man. Wow. Uh, so just, just we know we've talked about this stem cell tourism, it's called, where you go anywhere in the world that's offering a fix for your disease, and you're suffering, and you're paralyzed, and you're going to do whatever it takes, which I, I understand, but just be, just be cautious that, you know, these things are not proven, and clearly you don't want noses growing in your back. So Basically. Ugh, that's bad. So the ground there's another next story is a groundbreaking stem cell technique developed to heal fractures and prevent amputations. This is um, the can't uh, let's see let's see a pioneering technique that uses patients' own stem cells to regrow bone, heal fractures, and prevent amputations has been developed by a Canterbury Christchurch Church University professor. Do you know the Canterbury Christchurch? Yeah, yes. that's what I, that I always check out their website every morning. Yeah, I know. I haven't been in a couple <laughs> of days. <laughs> so Professor Anand Shetty, from, who deputy director of the minimally invasive surgery at this the University Medway campus, has been collaborating with groups in South Korea to develop this procedure, um, as well as a special gel to give signals to stem cells to start regeneration. So it, it basically includes collecting bone marrow from a patient's pelvis, you isolate the center, the stem cells with you know centrifugation. Um, then you mix them with this collagen gel, and it's injected into the fracture site of bone. And the stem cells will then regenerate and grow as new bone over a period of time, connecting the unhealed fracture. Uh, so this is a new uh, technique that they hope to implement as a way to uh, heal fractures and prevent uh, amputations. So that's cool. Yep. Uh, gene profiling techniques to accelerate stem cell therapies for eye disease. So. Researchers at the NIH have developed a technique that will speed up the production of stem cell-derived tissues. Um, they say that the method will sim- simultaneously measures the expression of multiple genes, which will allow you know, scientists to quickly characterize the cells, um, and will help the researchers in their efforts to use patient skin cells to regenerate RPE, the retinal pigment epithelium. We've heard a bunch of people talk about it. Sally Temple talked about it on her show. It's a tissue in the back of the eye. That uh, basically is affected in very you know severe blinding disorders like macular degeneration. Um, so, I guess the, the the progress in stem cell therapies has been limited by the ability to authenticate cells. So, when we make cells in a dish, we really want to make sure that they're actually the cells that sit in in the tissue or in the eye. So, they're saying that this test, this assay, expands the capacity and streamlines the process. That will allow people to, you know, put their tissue on. And it'll, it's almost like a scorecard, if you will, Yosef. It'll mm. tell you, like, yes, ding, you do have RPE. It's expressing blah, blah, blah. So uh, that that was made available by... These are, um, these are antibody markers? Or? I'm looking here. It says that they start with skin cells, skin biopsy, IPS, and then they measure the expression of H genes that are markers of development function and disease. They oh, measured so they, RNA levels. Yeah, nice. 
and so now they have this multiplex. I think it's a multiplex assay for for gene expression. So that's cool. I'm all about multiplexing. Let's see. There was a review in Cell Stem Cell that I thought was very cool by Eric Olson. It's the immune modulation of stem cells and regeneration. I think immune system, immune modulation, and stem cells are so cool together. I think it's a really hot area for any young scientist out there looking to get into a cool area. The immune system and stem cells is really hot, very cool. Uh, so this was a, just a review. It's talking about how, uh, you know, over the years there's been a growing appreciation that cellular and humoral components of the immune system contribute to regeneration and damaged tissues. So they go on and they discuss the key findings that implicate inflammatory cells and their secreted cytokines and tissue replacement after injury via stem cells and regenerative me- me- uh, mechanisms. So that's cool, cell stem cell. There was a paper in Nature Methods speaking of the tri, uh, you know, institution there down at Sloan Kettering. This was at a Rockefeller by Ali Brivanalu. 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 Sorry. Um, we can talk to Daylon about this. Daylon did his grad work with Ali. So the, this was a method to recapitulate early embryonic spatial patterning and human embryonic stem cells. Mm-hmm. So um, they show that there's these... There's this new way using this geometric confinement. You can it'll trigger the self organization of patterning and HESCs. So you put BMP4 on, and the colonies reproducibly differentiated to outer trophectoderm like ring, mm-hmm. an inner ectodermal circle, and a ring of mesenderm expressing primitive street markers right between. So by by putting them into this uh, orientation, they could recapitulate the architecture of the very early embryo in the dish. It's like gastrulation uh, cool. in a dish, huh? Yeah, it's really cool, actually, because you want to be able to mimic gradients and things like this, uh, and this seems like a new way to do they it. This s- in Nature Methods. They say the biggest event in your life is gastrulation. Gastrulation, man. That's where yeah. it's at. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, bio- biological pacemaker created by minim- minimally invasive somatic reprogramming in pigs with complete heart block. This is in Science Translational Medicine. Um it says somatic reprogramming by the re-expression of the embryonic transcription factor T-box 18 converts T-box. cardiomyocytes to pacemaker cells. So they hypothesize that this could be viable um, you know, for pacemaker-dependent patients afflicted with device-related complications. And so they tested whether adenoviral TBX18 gene transfer could create biological pacemaker activity in vivo. So um, they were able to do this. They were able, it says, biological pacemaker activity originating from the uh, intramyocardial injection site was evident in these TBX18 transduced animals starting at day two and persisted for the duration of 14 days with minimal backup electronic pacemaker use. So basically they were able to put this gene into the heart and it would create a physiologically relevant pacemaker activity in a complete heart block. So that that's really cool, actually. It's it's, it's more this in vivo reprogramming, if yeah, you will. Yeah, that's that's where it's at. Science translational medicine. Uh, this was in Nature Communications: direct induction of hem- hematoendothelial programs in human pluripotent stem cells by transcriptional regulators. This comes out of the lab of uh, Slovkin and also Jamie Thompson. So, looking for ways to. Uh, Generate hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent cells has been always been a challenge. We could talk to Daylon about that in a minute. And so they screened 27 factors, and they reveal that two groups of transcriptional regulators uh, can induce a hematopoietic program from HPSCs. Uh, so if you want to make myeloid, they give you two genes. 
And then for erythromega carasitic, they give another two genes, so you can do that. Mm. That's really cool, NatureCom. And then lastly, we'll just end here and bring Daylon on, but it's in nature. It's called reprogramming human endothelial cells to hematopoietic cells requires vascular induction. It's out of the lab of Shaheen Rafi. Uh, so we will end it here, and Yos will run across the street. We'll be back at you in a few minutes. Nice. All right, so we have the... Uh, our guest today is world famous for a lot of things, but we know him uh, for his work in uh, developmental and stem cell biology. He's been with us before. He's back again, and he will be back again and again. He's a fan favorite, Dr. Daylon James, assistant professor of stem cell bio um, in reproductive medicine. I believe that's right. He'll tell me if it's not, from, and while Cornell Medical College. Uh, DJ, welcome back to the show. Did I get that right, man? Yeah, you got it exactly right. Thanks for having me again, guys. I love being yeah. on the show. Nice. Good to have you. They had a little, uh, Yost tried going across the street there. That didn't work out, so they walked back across the street, and I think they're now at Sloan Kettering. So. Yeah, I technically roped him in over here. So, uh, yeah, great. Thanks for coming back on. Um, so, your former PI and mentor or uh, just published this paper in Nature. Uh, do you think we should start off with that, or did you have any other questions to start off with, Chris? I, I think what we want to start out, because I was... You know, we dance around the niche. We talk about it a lot. So I thought for the for the listeners, Daylon, if you wouldn't mind talking about stem cell niche, in particular the vascular niche, really what that is in basic terms, what it does, why we think it's important. I guess that'll put a little bit more into context when we start talking about uh, the paper and or papers. But uh, just maybe give a little bit of an intro or uh, you know something about the niche, the stem cell niche, in particular the vascular niche. Sure, sure. So I think um, it's not a brand new idea. In fact, your uh, mentor, Sally Temple, really introduced the idea of the vascular niche contribution to neural stem cells and their biology. But I think uh, the vascular niche has gotten short shrift in, in the past. Uh, most people appreciate the vascular system as a, you know, a plumbing type system, a system of conductance for spreading out blood and delivering nutrigen, nutrients, oxygen to all the body's tissues. But uh, the reality is, is that every organ has endothelial cells that are native to that organ that have really uh, important function for maintaining the local resident organ-specific stem cell population. Uh, so that's been dubbed the vascular niche, which is the endothelial cells delivering all their oxygen and nutrients, but also, also at the same time delivering these paracrine or angiocrine, as Shaheen Rafi has coined the term, angiocrine factors, which are specific growth factors derived from endothelial cells that foster a healthy stem cell community in each organ. Mm. So these signals then, be, um, the stem cell or the progenitor cell receives the signals and it either keeps them at bay and tells them to maintain as a stem cell or it could induce them to somehow differentiate into the tissue that's needed, right? That, that'd be the idea? Exactly. And, you know, the vascular system is very dynamic. It can be disrupted in injury or it can degenerate with age. And it's thought now that this is intimately related to organ dysfunction and failure, is that the stem cell population in each organ is not as robust because the vascular niche is degenerated by cardiovascular disease in large part. You know, the same thing that makes us our heart dysfunction may be affecting other vascular niches. And I think it's also important to note that depending on, as you were alluding to, depending on where, how the system is, uh, what the 
the physiological state of the system is you can have different outcomes, either self-renewal of stem cells or instructing them to form different differentiated uh, derivatives that are important for function. And also in development, I think most notably in my interest is that, that the primitive endothelial system or vascular system actually instructs organ formation. So you don't get organs like the liver or the pancreas unless you have a functional vascular system. So endothelial cells are plumbing, but they're also very instructive. Yeah, I'm glad you called it plumbing because that's sort of how I think of it. As somebody who just bought a house, it's like, I have a house, but if I don't have access to water or electricity, it's kind of pointless at the end of the day. So it's like, you know, and but in terms of if an organ were a house and the plumbing is the vasculature, what you know, the stem cell that's inside of, say, an organ, um, you're saying that there's uh, a certain amount of signaling or what do you call it? Amocrine? Angiocrine. Angiocrine. Angio being the prefix for blood or vessels or, or vascular uh, cells. And yeah, if you look just at a microscope at, at the organ and you localize the stem cells, you'll often see that they're they're located in close proximity to blood vessels, just often directly adjacent in direct contact with them. And that's also true in the case of tumors as well, right? Yes, the the tumor stem cells, it's thought, are can can be fed by uh, the vascular tree, and that's why some therapies for tumors are anti-angiogenesis therapies that are supposed to starve them of blood and oxygen nutrients, but I think a new idea is that also restricting that angiocrine function. If you can zero in on those paracrine factors that are feeding the tumor, not just feeding oxygen nutrient, but growth factors, and inhibit that process, you can really target the tumor stem cells that are latent and the most dangerous cell of the tumor. So aside from the factors secreted what about the actual, what about proximity in the niche? Did, are there cell-to-cell -cell interactions within a vascular niche that are important that are, you know, something with a basement membrane or something like that? Has it purely been shown to be this angiocrine or paracrine release of factor? Do, do you find that, uh, you, you know, is it redundant? In other words, I, I know you've done a lot of cult cultures, and we can talk about it in this paper when we get there. You do cult culturing systems where you culture the cell or the, let's say, a stem cell, progenitor cell on top of a niche cell, and you get some sort of effect, and you can recapitulate that or, you know, just by using, you know, uh, you know uh, just the factors it releases. So is it only really been shown to be factor-driven, or is there some sort of contact that, 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 that helps provide that niche? Well, in the case of stem cells, uh, hematopoietic stem cells in their niche, there's competing niches and competing influences and competing scientific camps, in fact, on what niche is the most important and what are the factors within each respective niche. There's the idea of the vascular or versus the endosteal niche or the, there's a mesenchymal stem cell co-culture system that's thought to produce a certain type of derivative, a lymphoid derivative of, of stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells in culture. So there's a lot of different types of niche, and even within the same organ system. And as you asked in, in direct answer to your question, I think that contact has been shown to be certainly important, but it's signaling uh, that's that's in, engendered by the contact. In this case, notch signaling, which is a membrane-bound ligand and a membrane-bound receptor, and only when two cells are directly in, in contact with each other can you get the the transmission of that signal. So oftentimes, 
the the niche and the niche interactions are not only you know secreted factor dependent angiocrine secreted factors but direct cell cell contact mediated uh, interactions that's that lateral inhibition is that yes, what that yeah exactly yeah. it's a very similar idea to this nice nice yeah that that's also important for um brain stem cells as yeah, well. Yeah, that's all the way back like old school development, like <laughs> yeah. uh, the ganglionic mother cell or something <laughs> like that, if I yeah. remember correctly. But, you know, so so transitioning now, so we, the last, I think I looked it up, it was October when Daylon was on last and we were talking a lot about the state of generating these, the true hematopoietic stem cell from a pluripotent stem cell, so from an embryonic stem cell or an induced pluripotent stem cell. And we talked a little bit about the you know, kind of where the field was with that. And there were some issues there, certain lineages that just couldn't be made or putting them in vivo, getting to them in graft and such. So I guess, Daylon, before we get into some some this, some current literature, where has that really progressed? I know we've been, we're almost a year out now from that, a little bit less. I mean, I, I know the paper, Shaheen and some others are attempting to do that in, in some different ways. Uh, we talked about a paper I was just telling Daylon about before we got on with him. I was, Yosef and I talked about it in the roundup that, there was this uh, direct. There was some sort of a direct induction strategy where they put transcription factors into pluripotent stem cells to try to drive uh, lineages. Uh, you know these myeloid and such. So you know, give us give us if you will a little state of where we are with that. Or have we have we jumped a hurdle, or are we still got those same hurdles in the hematopoietic field from pluripotent stem cells? Well, I think we're facing some of the same hurdles in the field of pluripotent stem cell to definitive hematopoietic stem cell. But I think that what a lot of groups are trying to do is to bypass. So it's similar to the idea when SCNT ran into a lot of real roadblocks, he tried to short-circuit it by using this enforced and induced reprogramming, using some of the same factors that are involved in the physiological process and enforcing them in this non-physiological reprogramming process. Um, with respect to hematopoietic stem cells, <clears throat> I think a lot of groups are taking the same approach. Uh, they're trying to enforce specific hematopoietic stem cell characteristics on non-hematopoietic stem cells. So um, one form that that can take is, is trying to directly differentiate the ES-derived cells and enforcing certain identities on them, which I think is similar to what Slukvin and Tom Thompson did in the Nature Communications paper. But um, what Shaheen has just recently do, done with uh, Vladislav Sandler is taken hematopoietic cells, I mean, uh, sorry, human umbilical vein endothelial cells and dermal endothelial cells, essentially blood vessel cells, and expressed hematopoietic-specific genes in those cells and caused them to transition to a hematopoietic stem cell. The uh, important, I think, uh, innovation here, well, one amongst many, is that they showed that the vascular niche was really important for this process. So essentially, doing this on just on tissue culture plastic, transitioning the cells, doesn't work. They need to be in a vascular niche, in co-culture with other endothelial cells that can foster this process. What were the name of those cells again? Human umbilical vein endothelial cells. They're called HUVEC. HUVEC, baby. These are the cells that you get from a cord when that are discarded after birth uh, of a human baby. Um, 
the idea, though, again, it's very, I think it's very closely tied to the human ESL efforts because I think one of the major problems with the human ESL effort is of all the many cells that you can get from ESLs, you can get a lot of different types of hematopoietic cell with different levels of potency, which is what I showed and we were talking about in the last episode when I was on. But I think one of the major problems is it's so hard to zero on an exactly the right cell. And as soon as you get that cell, it immediately goes haywire because there's all these other competing influences. So the key is going to be, I think, to try and get the right cell by the different, and you know, the right instruction, the right program of differentiation, and do that in the context where that cell can be maintained and balanced so that it won't go downhill, so to speak, and differentiate. The cells that we may get in the ES cell system may be bona fide and correlate with cells that are existing in human embryos, but they exist as ephemera that are ultimately driven in the direction of differentiation and can't be maintained as hematopoietic stem cells. So, uh, actually, I have a question. Where, I, where are these E4, EC cells, the, the, the feeder cells that some of these... Uh, Huvex, I guess we're grown on. Um, are they a? Is this a angiogenic line? Uh, is it like you know we used to use MS fives to induce neurogenesis, and I, I've never heard of E four EC cells. That's a great question. The E four EC cells are kind of like what you were talking about that you use to induce neural differentiation or whatever. The SM five. It's a cell. It's a Huvex cell. Okay. That has then been altered by in, uh, in embedding within it uh, E4 adeno, an adenoviral gene, the, a gene from the common cold that makes the cells much more stable and, and, and endows them with a, ri a rich vascular niche type profile that makes them really amenable to these co-culture vascular niche type fostering reprogramming experiments. Nice. Nice. So uh, in this paper, it seems like uh, they did sort of a Yamanaka, like uh, narrow it down to the right transcription factors that are able to reprogram, say, umbilical cord into induced hematopoietic stem cells. And what are these genes that are coming out? It looks like the main ones are this PU.1 and ETV uh, gene, was it? Uh, so the recipe that was used was... FGRS is the is the abbreviation, and that's FOS B, GFI one for the G, uh, RUNCS one, mm. and PU point one, which is also called SPI one. SPI one. So these four factors, when you express them in endothelial cells, with the exciting thing I think is we can take a human patient with some type of hematological malignancy, take a dermal endothelial cell from them, and this is what uh, Vladislav did in the paper, and then transition that and make that into a hematopoietic cell that can engraft in a mouse and then undergo secondary engraftment, which is a hallmark of a hematopoietic stem and progenitor cell, all the while retaining the potential to generate all the different uh, blood cell types. So this is really something that I think is very close to clinical application. I mean, notwithstanding all the issues with the viral transgenesis. I don't want to understate that. But it's truly an autologous approach. You can take a patient sample without having to go through an IPS intermediate, which a lot of people think might be dangerous, and go right to hematopoietic cells that can engraft 
and can address hematological issues. Do, do these need to be stably expressed, or is it a transient? You just express those that four is factors. A great question, Yos. That's <laughs> why you get the money, my friend. <laughs> yeah, so Yos. These uh, uh, an important experiment that the reviewers asked for is show that you could express it these four factors and then induce their silencing. So did you okay. need to maintain? No, you just needed a pulse of expression. And wow. once they arrived at the reprogrammed state, they were truly stem or progenitor cells that could engraft without having to maintain the expression. So I think a conceivable approach is to use these kind of modified RNA approaches that have been mm. left no footprint, so to speak, yeah. that are, I think, going to be a lot uh, more applicable at, in a clinical sphere. So, nice. so two things. Um, the first thing is, I mean, I wonder if they're doing this. Is it uh, maybe it'd be cool to show? I don't know if it's necessary in terms of a clinical option. But the next experiments would scream that maybe you can do this somehow in vivo, right? That you can in vivo resident, you know, in the resident niche or something. I don't know if you would need to, you know, for some reason go in and put these factors into endothelium that's alive and living in, in a patient and turn them into something. Would there be an application for something like that? Yeah, I think that's that's probably the next wave is to do an in situ type approach. Um, I think one really big idea that, I mean, is not that novel, but is certainly, I think, raised in profile considering these, this recent paper, is that maybe you can tickle the cells without having to have actual overexpression of these genes. Maybe you can manipulate endothelium in vivo in a way that causes them to undergo this process on their own. I think an important point of this paper is that you want to make the cells just... The way hematopoietic stem cells are born in their first, in their ontogeny, is from an endothelial cell. Now, that's, yeah, that's the question I have so, for you. Are they, are they, so the, the blood stem cells come from the vasculature? Yes. Originally, throughout the body, even the more primitive, non-definitive uh, hematopoietic cells come from a vascular progenitor cell. So, <coughs> pardon me, I think a key idea that was introduced here is that if you want to get something that works, you can try and, you know, tweak nature and short-circuit it with these reprogramming approaches, but maybe the best and most, you know, functional cell that you're going to get is the one that you take through its physiological paces. If you can recapitulate that process of, of hematopoietic ontogeny by taking it from an endothelial cell, which mm. has a lot of the, the fundamental, you know, basic elements of a hematopoietic cell, it's just tweaked and to become, you know, they're near neighbors mm. in those dendrograms of all the cellular tree. They're such near neighbors yeah. that it doesn't take much to get it to become a hematopoietic cell. And when it does make that switch, because the manipulation is so nuanced and surgical, and you don't have to do this global sledgehammer, then maybe the cell is more like the physiological stem cell and therefore has more of its functional attributes. Nice, nice. I want to, I want to tickle some cells in vivo. <laughs> we're going to tickle all those cells. No, is next time I want to see you. Next is gen, it, next year, we'll tickle some. Is cells. It, is <laughs> it, isn't there a risk for doing? You know, the the approach in vivo. Isn't there a large risk of, uh, you know, inducing leukemia in in a yes, patient? Yes, I mean that's very insightful, and thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> thanks for telling the Hate world we're giving people that. Le leukemia. But I think that you, I mean, it's, it's really smart of you, and this is why these are 
really <laughs> being done in mice is because we, we really can't say for certain that we have a population that won't be aberrant. We, we have tested the cells. I mean, I shouldn't say we. I was a, just a participant. This is mainly Vladislav Sandler's work with Shaheen. But they looked really rigorously to look at the stability of the genome in these cells and show that the cells that were ultimately engrafting were not leukemogenic or aberrant. Mm. But that said, you can't say that that would never happen. Obviously, the process has to be refined. I think one of the first elements that you got to do is, even though you have an inducible system where you can silence the genes, they're still integrating into the genome. And if you were to do that in vivo, it would be a tremendous liability. By, you know, insertional mutagenesis or oncogenesis, you could induce a tumor when you're trying to cure one. So yeah. clearly, we have to find methods that are much more surgical, that leave less of a footprint, mm. and that ultimately are going to be palatable to the FDA and regulatory agencies that are going to ultimately have to let these through to trial. So, so the other thing I had was if we have the niche is obviously very important, and in this context, in this paper, they show that it really does help initiate that program. So if you were to differentiate pluripotent stem cells under the current protocol under in within the niche with the niche 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 cells present do you think or do you know of studies that do this and have found that you get a much better cell the much better output cell just like this strategy except no more no genetic manipulation just just growth factor addition plus niche. So yeah the the paper uh, that we talked about last time I was it was one of the elements that, that I was working at there was doing differentiation on these E4 ECs, these mm. altered UVEC. So basically what you're telling me is you didn't listen to anything I said last time. <laughs> I <laughs> was trying to put it delicately, but Chris, I, I know the volume <laughs> of podcasts that you must do. It's hard to keep it all straight. I don't blame you, buddy. You're so, so that's what you essentially did. And so, so basically in both paradigms – uh, you get a better induction, I guess, in this here because they're they it's a different approach, obviously. But um, aside from the, like you said, the genetic modifications that they did here and the introducing of the genetic material, this this endpoint seems to be the most the the, the closest, if you will, to having a cell that might yes. that could repair. I think okay. it's really an impressive feat that that a lot of people have been going after. I think though the the one just to just to revisit the ES space system, I think one element that may be confounding there is that in an ES cell, you know how these, these differentiating colonies work. In fact, you guys have overcome it with your methods in neural because you get such a homogeneous population that all the other derivative populations are not going to really inform your dominant population. Mm. But when you're doing hematopoiesis differentiation, you're getting hematopoietic cells, and you can even really raise the efficiency of that. But the population we're going after is so minuscule that I think that you're, as soon as you get it, it's so outnumbered by all the other cell types and the, this evolving, constantly biodynamic niche that the, the, it's getting lost. So unlike that, this was a uniform population in, in Shaheen's paper that he was then converting. So wow. I think that it was a much more robust process because it was it was more stable. I think what we have to go after in the ES-based system is to isolate a, a real uh, primitive but but high potential or a definitive cell early on and it's and it's right after its birth and then put it in conditions isolated so that it can really be stabilized in a niche without all the competing paracrine influences that can corrupt it. Mm. Wow. So these these cells are really I mean, they're to me they're just phenomenal that you just inject them, they hone in, 
and they they essentially proliferate and become blood, right? Is yeah, it? they become a part of that person. I mean, and this is the one the one transplant system that is actually in practice, and it's really impressive that a single cell can become a whole organ system, and there's really nothing like it. I mean, the blood is such an amazing system for this reason. It's why it's such a sought-after cell type, because you could do so much good with this one cell, but it's such a hard cell to get. Yeah, it's it's not the megakaryocyte, is it? The, yeah. No, that's one step before that's, or after. Those, the megas, are just one of the... Megas, megakaryocytes are the cells that make platelets. Okay. The cells that, that make the clotting uh, elements of the blood. So, yeah, that's just one constituent, like a red blood cell, a megakaryocyte. Then there's the immune surveillors, macrophage, and... You know, the adaptive immune system, T cell, B cell. There's a lot of different cells, the allergic mast cells. All the different cells uh, that make up the hematopoietic system are all related in some way to specific diseases that could be affected by just getting this one cell. So it's a world of disease that can be affected by getting this one beautiful cell. So it looks like we're one step closer to the induced hematopoietic stem cell. And I kind of like this approach. It's like when IN came out for induced uh, neurons, just essentially taking skin cells and jumping the shark and going straight to the neuron instead of back resetting the clock back to the stem cell or pluripotent state. And then, you know, uh, but in this case, I feel like, you know, scale doesn't matter as much. Whereas IN, I feel like scale matters because if you're going to try and replace a dopamine system, you need more than 1% efficiency. Whereas here, 1% could actually work or even less. Yes. Yes. But I think the idea is similar. It's no coincidence, I don't think, that skin was induced to become neural because, you know, they're both ectodermal derived. So I think that it's it's the same. We're we're rediscovering the same phenomenon, I think, corroborating each other's work here. So the umbilical cord, uh, uh, say, so I guess, in, let, let's talk about like future applications. So in the future, uh, even though Chris didn't save the cord blood, but say for his child, but say like I or somebody else uh, does that, um, their child has these HUVEX, right? The right. human umbilical cord vein endothelial That's right. cell. Yeah. Okay. So the HUVEX, so they have that supply. Uh, we figure out how to non-virally or whatever, you know, light footprint uh, induce these hematopoietic stem cells. And then, you know, say what... what what could what could this help for? Uh, what kind of diseases where uh, my child is sick, uh, where this would help? So I think it's, it goes beyond cord. You don't really need to have the cord endothelium. It's really anyone. You could take their dermal endothelium as one point. So there's no limits along those lines. Any patient qualifies. And the patients we're talking about here are any hematologic malignancy. We're talking about leukemia. You know, you take a endothelial cell from their arm, let's say, and then you give them, you know, high-dose radiation, ablate their, their, you know, marrow to get rid of the leukemia. You can mm-hmm. do an aggressive regimen because you have to give back to the patient a supply of their own but endothelial, clean. Mm. It's not derived from their blood, which could be contaminated with leukemic cells. You get it from a pure endothelial culture. Mm. So you know it's not leukemogenic, and then you can convert that to a hematopoietic stem cell that can recolonize the whole blood. Similarly, let's take sickle cell. You could, let's take hemophilia. Or well, I mean, yeah, hemophilia. Take any, 
any well hemophilia is not a great example you're going to have to edit the tape there <laughs> sickle cell <laughs> is a great example because you could do you know genetic engineering or beta th- thalassemia a genetic engineering to correct defects so you could take a dermal endothelial cell you can do some you know tailin or crispr modification to put in the right uh, sequence and and correct the genetic uh, issue there and then put that cell back into the patient and and cure a disease like th- this is i think the big potential of hematopoietic cells is we're talking about, about lifelong are, cures what about like hiv like uh you know make some manipulation with the cxcr5 and then you know blast out the the blood system and then reintroduce clean immune system that's exactly you just said it yeah. there you go cure just for cured a- hiv just right there. Boom. done <laughs> let's do this comes together man did you save your kids uh, cord blood Dale? Or no, no, you know what I did because we he was a unique um, genotype because <laughs> my father's black and his I mean he looks like a total Aryan but he's got a little black in him and we thought that he was genetically unique enough that if we put it in the public registry that no one would snatch it up but I doubt that that's really going to last. The truth is we just couldn't afford it. We're not rich like you homies running this yeah, podcast. I, I, had, I, I didn't money. bank any cord blood. I, I didn't really. You know what I did the second time? At the time, it just didn't really seem. I think it's a lot. A lot of it. I don't want to use the word sham because a lot of people pay the money for the service. I just don't. A a lot of what they say they can do, I don't necessarily believe they can. It's deceptive. The salesmanship. I'll tell you what we did the second time. Funny story is, uh, right after my wife, we arrived at the hospital eight ten. The baby was out at eight eighteen, and I called my guys in the lab who came down (laughs) with like a biohazard bag and took the placenta and the cord and like did some isolations, some like home cooking type isolations. I don't know if that's ever going to get past the board if I ever need it, but I have it somewhere on. It's all good. That's what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to materialize it. Now I know I got to have Daylon. If I have another child, I got to have him in the room ready to go (laughs) and isolate (laughs) what the heck's going on so we can get some cells. All right. Um, Thanks, Dan. Let's move. I think you want to move to a rant. I don't know what time or how are we doing on time, Yosef. Yeah, you, no, we're we're about due for a rant. Um, so for I mean, uh, thanks again, Dave, for coming on and talking about this. I, I find it so fascinating, and I feel still like I don't know anything about this world. I, I know it because of my selfish interest of of this neural stem cells being held in a vascular niche. And uh, a lot of what we do in the lab is understanding signals that control stem cells, but that was really all derived from the niche. So niche is really where it's at. And uh, these kind of studies are, are, are really instrumental. As you can see, uh, the Daylon's work and this paper that just came out uh, from Shaheen really shows you the potential, the therapeutic potential of what you can do if you can understand the niche and manipulate it properly. So well done. Hell yeah, my man. Yeah, well, congrats. Let's, let's ran it up. Come on, let's ran it up. Who's got it? Uh, well, I've got, you know, I've got like a, a lighthearted rant. I feel like uh, we've had some serious ones considering, you know, uh, the, the releasing of data and all sorts of, you know, just uh, upset with science, uh, fundamentals and training and all sorts of stuff. This one's a, a more lighthearted rant. This, so as I don't know if you know, it's been raining a lot here in New York City a lot lately. And, um, one thing I noticed is not everybody knows how to walk on the sidewalk with their umbrella. And it, I just 
it, it just upsets me when people take up, you know, they're just looking at their cell phone, holding the umbrella, and take, you know, these big, huge umbrellas, oh, and you're walking down. Those doorman umbrellas. I hate those people. <laughs> and you're walking down a narrow, narrow sidewalk, and you're just dodging umbrellas, and if you're taller, you're, you're just getting beamed by, like, you know, you can almost lose an eye from, like, just poor umbrella etiquette. I That's my Listen, rant. Listen, my understanding of the umbrella etiquette, it, everybody knows, is when you're passing by, especially when it gets dense, you lift the umbrella yeah. to a safe height. Is that... Does not everybody know that? <laughs> well, so, yeah, the problem, what if you're real short? I mean, that height is re- real risky. I mean, uh, it gets real, you know, you, depending on where you are in New York, you guys have been there longer than me, but I had to learn that etiquette real quick because uh, <laughs> people let you know, man. I think I clipped a guy once with an, uh, <laughs> with an it wasn't a good scene, but I got to think in New York, they have some eyes getting almost clipped out by these umbrellas. <laughs> it's dangerous, man. They got those little pins on the end. Little... You know, I see those people with those little, like, booth umbrellas, those ISO ones that come deep down. I see that a little bit. They look, they look a little bit too nerdy. I, can, I don't think I can get into <laughs> They do that. look a little funny they remind me of old 1800s photos <laughs> then you got these people walking around with these small flimsy ass umbrellas that are all flipped inside out and they're like trying to fight the wind and it's it's an absolute disaster yeah, and you know there's no way possible it's going to work out but they still try to they flip it back in right and then they get back on the road with it and then two seconds later it blows back out it's like this endless struggle with these umbrellas i, I feel like every they new york standardize the umbrella situation in new york city yeah you can only sell you need it. You need one with those vents at the top that the wind can blow through. Yeah, those and are the best. And we need to make those sure that high. all the rubber, the rubber tops are intact. Because if you got one off, you got a loose rogue like steel pin thing that but can listen, definitely hook someone's eye What you gotta up. understand is that there exists a whole subculture of dudes who must have a truckload of umbrellas in the back. And like literally, as soon as the first drop hits the water, these guys prop up out of nowhere and are selling umbrellas for $5 a pop. That entire industry is built on shoddy umbrellas. And after a rainstorm, you see every trash can yeah. filled with umbrellas. It's like when you walk by those guys that hand out flyers. Do something for me. Those guys that hand out flyers in the street. When you walk by, look at the next garbage can filled with flyers because everybody just takes it. New Yorkers, they just play along. Take the flyer, throw it in the trash. Buy an umbrella for $5. As soon as the storm's over or it breaks, throw it in the trash. That's yeah, New York. Those, those, those umbrellas are such a sham. They last maybe five minutes at best. It's funny. So where yeah. are these guys getting these from? If they're five bucks, they just, they just find, they got a buddy that makes them for 10 cents. I mean, well, what's going on with these things? There's I mean, they make a good profit off of There's five bucks. There's a whole you know universe in the tunnels of New York. There's a universe of umbrella sweatshops. It amazes me the, the the hustlers that are out there. I mean, there are people on the street right now selling iPhone cords. And on the way in here, I drove into work today. There was people, you know, at the stoplight selling water. You know, just people holding up water. Like I'm thinking to myself, am I going to buy water off a guy off the street? That is, I bought it. I bought it. Was before, it good? And the guy, they say. Ice cold water, ice cold water, they sell. They should call it water cold ice. I got it one time. It was literally a b- block of ice. I was so thirsty. I was licking at the, at the little spout like a crack addict. Got maybe a swallow out of the whole thing. It's a con. It's like they sell you that for a dollar just to mess with you. I'm convinced. Well, oh, I'm man. glad Stop that I know. drinking knows. plastic water bottles, man. Um, BPA. Yeah, so, watch out for BPA. All right, guys. Uh, thanks again, Daylon, for coming on. Uh, don't. 
uh, don't feel like you can't come on the show because you've been on here twice. We're going to have you on as many times as possible. Bro, I'm going to have uh, to start seeing some returns. I wanna, we're going to work funding. it in. We're going to draw up a contract and have Daylon somehow become officially Just involved. we got to figure out some, what. Uh, buy me some beads. If you send me a steady supply of beads, I'll take that in kind. Oh, you I mean the FGS beads or what kind of beads are you Maybe we can send you out. Maybe we can send you across the country. You can interact with... I'll be Certain the scientists the, and, and, and the break them down like Borat, like Borat-esque. <laughs> That's great. I'll be the Borat of the science community. Thanks. That's a great offer. I, I'm gonna have to take. I'm gonna have to t- turn that down for now. My uh, reputation notwithstanding. All right, guys. I, I, I don't know. I know. We should stop. All right, man. Thanks for again for doing it, Yo. So I'll see you on the other side, guys. We'll talk right. to you soon. Take care, Dale. Thanks, guys. Great to be on the show. See you.